explicitly pray that His people would be one. But He said that the unity of His people would be one of the primary means through which the world would know that Jesus Himself had come from God. In fact, Jesus continues by saying that the unity of His people is a fruit or perhaps even an aspect of Jesus' own glory which He has bestowed on us. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So not only does this glorious, perfect unity of Jesus' people bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the truth from God, but it also bears witness to the love that God has for us, that He would bless us with such a wonderful unity and fellowship, both with God and with one another. The importance of unity in the church is likewise stressed by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, as we read from earlier this service. Uh, Paul, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, is speaking to Jews and Gentiles the most greatly divided people imaginable. And listen to how he describes what Jesus has accomplished. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, For He Himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so the very purpose for which Jesus died was to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to one another so that we would be united together in one body as one people. And Paul goes on in chapter 3 of Ephesians to explain that this work of uniting Jew and Gentile together in Christ is to abound to God's glory by displaying His manifold wisdom even to principalities and powers in heavenly places. And so in light of how clearly the Scriptures emphasize the importance of the unity of the church. Uh, Christians have always been quite united in recognizing its importance. However, Christians have too often been far less successful in living it out. Sadly, church conflicts and even church splits are not a shocking anomaly, but something of an everyday occurrence. In fact, something that many of us have faced. Uh, In fact, just uh, the other day, I was speaking with a fellow leader in my own church, and he commented that looking over, you know, past membership lists from years prior uh, actually made him feel sad uh, because of how many faces he saw of people that had left the church on something less than ideal terms and people with whom he did not feel that full sense of Christian unity. Now, I don't know what your church has been like. Uh, But I would guess that there have been conflicts, uh, that there have been those who have left unhappily, uh, those who have disagreed sharply, and various other breaches of unity which simply ought not be. Now, of course, some conflict in churches is unavoidable. 
Uh, Because the Scriptures clearly warn us that false converts and false teachers will come in. Uh, That's why Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning. He is self-condemned. It's why Jude warns in verse 18 of his letter, the last time, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And it's why Paul says in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by their smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. You see, at the end of the day, believers and unbelievers do not stand on common ground. So they can never be finally united. One is serving Christ and the other is serving himself. And so, churches will always have to contend for the truth even against other so-called Christians. And churches will always have to take action to excommunicate some from among their own number for heresy or scandalous behavior. And these things are not tragic breaches in church unity. These are necessary realities for as long as the church is existing here in this fallen world. However, the great tragedy in regard to church unity is when genuine believers fail to maintain the spiritual unity which God has forged between them in Christ. Like divorce, disunity among Christians is a separation of what God has joined together. And it creates a misrepresentation of the gospel itself. And it is this very issue of unity in the church that we turn our attention to as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10-31 through 31 today. Uh, now, as I mentioned in my introductory sermon to this book, Paul really spends the entire letter of 1 Corinthians dealing with one issue in the church after another. Uh, some years prior to writing this letter, Paul had planted the church of Corinth. Uh, And by this point, his missionary endeavors have taken him to the town of Ephesus, uh, where he stayed for some time. And while in Ephesus, Paul has both received personal reports about what's going on in Corinth, and he's also received at least one letter from the Corinthians. And so this book of 1 Corinthians, um, in this book, Paul spends chapters 1 through 6 responding to the reports he's heard, and then he spends chapter 7 through the end of the book responding to the Corinthians' letter. And chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through the end of chapter 4 is all dealing with the same issue, and it's the issue of division in the church. Now we're going to look at this issue broken into a few different sections, but for today, Uh, We're going to look from verse 10 of chapter 1 all the way through the end of the chapter, and we're going to consider three things. Number one, the nature of the division. Number two, its underlying cause. And number three, its remedy. So the nature of the division, the underlying cause of the division, and the remedy for the division. 
And so with that said, please follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 31. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. Amen. So first, let's consider the nature of the division here in the church of Corinth. Paul says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Now, Chloe is someone that the Corinthians must have known personally or at least known about. And apparently, she had family members or servants or employees who had visited Corinth and had been there and then later had come and visited Paul in Ephesus. And they had given Paul a report about what was going on. And one of the things they shared is that there was quarreling going on in the church in Corinth. And so what is it that the Corinthians were quarreling about? Well, verse 12, Paul explains. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that is Peter, or I follow Christ. 
Uh, so in other words, the Corinthians were growing partisan towards certain preachers, likely championing their cause and arguing with those who preferred other preachers. Uh, and based on what Paul will go on to argue in the rest of this section, it seems like one of the main things which attracted the Corinthians to one preacher over another was their estimation of that preacher's wisdom and eloquence. Uh, this also fits his, with what we know historically about Corinth because it was a town in which professional orators were common. Uh, whether philosophers or politicians or religious figures, crowds exalted the greatest speakers and took pride in the wisdom they could gain by listening to them. And so in other words, it seems that the Corinthians have just sort of taken this cultural practice and they've imported it into the life of their church. And now there is this banter and quarreling and even division in the church over which preachers to follow. Now it's interesting to notice the four preachers Paul mentions. Um, I think there may have been others which Paul chooses not to mention for various reasons. But of the ones he does mention, uh, it's helpful to note that there's no reason to think that any of them were party to the quarreling in the church. Um, Paul mentions Peter, who was certainly a high-profile figure in the early church, and he may well have visited Corinth. But we have no reason to think that Peter stayed there long term or that he did anything to encourage the creation of a Cephas party within the church. Um, Paul also mentions Apollos, who is the one of the four who may well have presently been in Corinth at this time. Uh, and Acts chapter 18, verse 24 mentions that Apollos was a particularly eloquent and learned man. Exactly the kind of preacher that the Corinthians would have gravitated toward and liked. Uh, but in chapters 3 and 4, Paul speaks positively of Apollos. So it seems that any party that had gathered behind his name would not have been done with his approval. Um, and <clears throat> so Apollos doesn't seem party to this quarreling. Interestingly, Paul mentions himself first. As if there were some who were saying, I follow Paul. And I think it's noteworthy Paul mentions himself first as if to underscore the fact that he is every bit as disheartened by those who would be partisan to him as to any other preacher. You know, Paul here is not personally offended that people like other preachers better than him. He is deeply concerned that there's division within the church. And then finally, Paul mentions the Christ party which at first blush is surprising because we might think that these are the people who actually have it right. I mean, surely instead of saying, I follow Paul or Cephas or Apollos or any other man, we should all say, I follow Christ. But Paul implicates these people in the quarreling and the division just as much as everyone else. And the problem here seems to be that although they were saying, I follow Christ, they were saying it as if, we're the really spiritual people who have it figured out, unlike all these other fellow church members. And thereby, by claiming we follow Christ, they were actually creating division within the church themselves. Um, in fact, this reminds me of some today who um, rail against denominations for introducing division in the church, and yet, ironically, they effectively create a non-denominational denomination of their own. And sometimes by their very language in criticizing other denominations actually introduce even greater division in the body of Christ rather than mending it. You see, the problem here was not the preachers. 
Nor was the problem that of the Corinthians having theological convictions or even agreeing doctrinally more with one preacher than another. Nor was the problem even that of choosing to label one's theological conclusions as if it would be wrong to identify as a Baptist or a Presbyterian. No, the problem here is a problem of the heart. The problem is that the Corinthians were attaching their allegiance to particular preachers to their own spiritual stature, feeling proud of what they knew, and acting as if my connection with this preacher is imparting some sort of exclusive knowledge that the rest of the church doesn't know. And therefore thinking that because of what I know, I must be spiritually superior. And therefore, the truth they were learning was inflating their head without softening their hearts. Friends, that is the same error that we fall into any time that we allow spiritual truth to, to puff us up. As Paul warns, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And so that's really the nature of the situation Paul's seeking to speak into here in Corinth. It's pride. Leading to jockeying for position. Leading to arguing over which preacher is the best. Leading to some Christians thinking that they are in some way superior to others. So that's the nature of the situation. Well, let's consider next the underlying cause of the division. Now we could say, well, it's pride as we've just discussed. But what's the cause of the pride? What I want you to notice here is that Paul wants to deal with this problem. He wants to deal with the division. But look at the way he goes about it. Um, He really doesn't bring up any of the specifics about who's disagreeing with who or who wronged who or who needs to apologize to who or um, how the Corinthians can better get along or forgive one another. Um, Many of those things are good and important things to deal with when it comes to division. But in this particular case, Paul focuses his attention elsewhere. In fact, he begins to talk about the cross and about God's purpose behind the cross. He talks about worldly wisdom versus the foolishness of God. And the point I want you to see here is that really Paul diagnoses the underlying cause for the division in Corinth to be a misunderstanding of the gospel itself. See, Paul recognizes the reason there's this pride, the reason there are these divisions, is because the Corinthians are confused about fundamental realities of the gospel itself. And so he doesn't waste breath trying to work out all the confusion, but he says, no, if they can understand the gospel aright, then church unity will follow. And there are three particular fundamental ways that the Corinthians have misunderstood the gospel. And the first, uh, we're going to look in verses 13 to 17, they have misunderstood the significance of baptism. They've misunderstood the significance of baptism. Uh, So let's look at verses 13 to 17. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied 
of its power. Now Paul asks several rhetorical questions in verse 13, which I think he intends to sound ridiculous. You know, of course Christ is not divided. Of course Paul was not crucified for you. Of course they were not baptized in the name of Paul. However, it sounds like what may be going on here is that the Corinthians were prone to attach a wrong significance to the baptizer instead of rightly emphasizing the significance of baptism itself. You see, baptism is meant to represent our union with Christ and to represent our union with one another. This is why Paul exhorts us in Ephesians chapter 3 to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because, he says, there's one body and one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. You see, it's not the baptizer who's significant. It's the one in whose name we're baptized, and it's the body in which, into which we are baptized that matters. But by placing importance on who baptized them in conjunction with aligning themselves behind various teachers, the Corinthians were taking baptism, the very thing Jesus intended to unite his people, and turning it into a basis for division over who was baptized by who. In fact, this is a mistake which would be repeated early in church history by a group called the Donatists. So in the early 300s, uh, persecution rocked the church, and some of the clergy caved to it. Well, the Donatists came along, and they began teaching, among other things, that if you were baptized by a priest who had become unfaithful, then your baptism was invalid. And so they began rebaptizing people. And this caused serious division in the church and much confusion among Christians as to whether or not their baptism had counted. Because now you had to figure out, was the guy who baptized me, was he really a true Christian or not? And so this just created all kinds of confusion, all kinds of division. And you see, the point Paul's making here is that it doesn't matter who does the baptizing. That's why he says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Right? Baptism doesn't save people. It's the preaching of the gospel that does. Nor is any special grace conveyed in baptism through the one doing the baptizing. It doesn't matter if Paul does it or somebody else. There's no grace that comes through the person doing the baptism. Interestingly, we find out in John chapter 4 that Jesus' own ministry included baptizing people. In fact, it even says that Jesus was making more disciples and baptizing more people than John the Baptist. But then it says, however, Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. And so Jesus himself clearly did not think that it was important for he himself to be the one to do the baptism because it's not the baptizer that matters. It's the one in whose name we are baptized and it is the body into which we are baptized that matters. And so Paul actually finds it convenient that he had not baptized many in Corinth at all. In fact, he thanks God for this providence because it protected him from the charge that he had baptized in his own name or that he had been zealous to baptize people so that they would feel some sort of special allegiance to him. You see, Paul's whole point here is that baptism and everything else in the Christian life is designed by God to make him increase and us decrease. 
And that's what the Corinthians have failed to understand. They've twisted even baptism itself into a man-exalting thing which put preachers on, plat- on pedestals when baptism and everything else is supposed to be all about Christ. Now, a second way that the Corinthians have misunderstood the, the gospel is they've misunderstood the message of the cross. Let's look again at verse 17 through verse 25. So Paul, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word or the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, when I say here that the Corinthians have misunderstood the message of the cross, I don't mean that they've necessarily misunderstood the doctrine of justification by faith, that they've misunderstood penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, In fact, Paul doesn't really critique any points of systematic theology here. Uh, And possibly the Corinthians had their systematic theology worked out quite well. And yet there's another level on which the Corinthians have misunderstood the cross. And it's that they've misunderstood the source of its power. You see, they seem to think that this is a message which can be made more powerful when it's preached with eloquence and wisdom. That's part of the reason they argue over which preacher is the best, because that's how the cross can, this message can be preached with the greatest power. But listen to what Paul says in verse 18. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says when you try to add eloquence and wisdom to make the message of the cross more powerful, actually what you risk doing is emptying it of its power. And why is that? Well, Paul explains here that it's because it is a message designed by God to destroy the wisdom of the wise. You see, God knows that the world through wisdom did not know Him. This world of sinful people has not applied their wisdom to know and love and serve God. No, we have used the wisdom God has given us to feed our own pride and rise up against God and say, I don't need God. And so, God has designed the message of the cross not to feed our pride, but to confront it. To turn man away from his own wisdom and to humble man in the dust before God. But of course, to preach the cross with eloquent wisdom would only accomplish the opposite. 
That would appeal to man's pride and therefore reinforce his independence and rebellion rather than confront it. And that's why Paul says here that God in His wisdom, rather than giving the Jews the signs they demanded, or the Greeks the wisdom which they sought, God has given them both the message of Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but... To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And you see, people can never be attracted to the cross by worldly means. The message of the cross is as foolish as can be to the worldly man. I mean, if God does not give us eyes to see it, it sounds like utter folly. I mean, to think that there is God Himself on high possessor of all glory and all fullness, that he would look down on creatures in rebellion against him and that that he would come to be born as a man on earth? I mean, this is ridiculous. This is, you know, talk to a Muslim and this is ridiculous to them. And, And not only that God would condescend to take on human flesh, but that God would suffer. That he would even die. That he would even be stripped naked and nailed to a cross and mocked by his own creation. This offends the sensibilities of man. This this seems ridiculous. And if that wasn't offensive enough, well, the message of the cross declares that you and I are sinners who deserve to be on the cross ourselves. That Jesus came to take our place because we are guilty in God's sight. And that offends man who thinks, I am good. I have done right. And then what offends man's pride just as much is the notion that others, those people that we look down on, that we think are so much worse than us, that know God's free mercy and grace would extend to them. And that they can come and be forgiven and be accepted before God by His grace as a gift. Not because of any good that they have done. And so in all these ways, the cross will be offensive and it will be rejected by many. And the the temptation for us, just like for the Corinthians, is to think, what can I do to make this message more palatable, more appealing, more effective for more people? And it's very tempting to try to add to the cross. Whether adding eloquence, whether adding wisdom and insight, whether adding the right songs around it, whether adding the, the right emotional appeal, whether adding you know, a big church with a nice program with lots of other things, whatever we can do to try to add to make the cross more effective. And what Paul is saying here is that none of those things enhance the message of the cross. They do not add to the power of the cross. Actually, they obscure the cross. And they risk emptying the cross of its power. You see, it's when you take everything else out of the way, and all that is left is the bare, naked cross of Christ. That is when the true power of the cross is displayed. That's when for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, they fall on their faces before Christ and say, the power of God and the wisdom of God 
And that's when they confess that even the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And that's exactly the point that the Corinthians have failed to understand. Because they failed to understand it, they are so obsessed with wanting the message to be adorned with eloquence and wisdom. Now, a third way that the Corinthians have really misunderstood the gospel um, is that they have misunderstood their calling as Christians. Look with me at verse 26 through 29. Paul continues, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now the Corinthians seem to think that it's their calling to shame the world by outdoing the world in terms of nobility, wisdom, and eloquence. Right? They think we are going to win the world by impressing the world. And they have their philosophers, well, we're going to come and we're just going to be greater and better and more eloquent and more convincing. And that is how we will win the world. That's how we will put the world to shame. And Paul says, no. Your calling isn't to shame the world by outdoing the world. Your calling is to shame the world by displaying God's glory through your own weakness and infirmity. That's why he says, consider your calling, brothers. Like, look around at yourselves. And remember that the only reason any of you are Christians is because God chose you. And who did God choose? Well, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is weak in the world. God chose what is low and despised in the world. And in other words, what Paul is saying, if, if God wanted to outdo the world in terms of strength and nobility and you know, all these in wisdom, why would he have chosen you? <laughs> you know, God is not trying to outdo the world in worldly things. No. He has chosen the weak and the lowly to put to shame the pride of the world and the pride of the proudful by choosing the lowly instead. God has chosen the lowly to show that it is He who saves and He alone. It's not man's doing, it is of God. And God has chosen the lowly not to outdo the world in what it lives for, but so that His people can be totally different from the world in living for God's glory rather than their own. And so friends, I hope that when visitors come into this church or my church, not that they leave thinking, wow, everyone there was so knowledgeable. Everyone was so well put together. I was just so impressed by how smooth the service went. Now, those are fine things, but, but that's not what I hope people go out the door thinking. I hope they leave thinking, wow, what, what a, that was quite a motley crew of average Joes, but they sure love one another. It's just a bunch of normal people, but they sure are honest and humble, and they sure love Jesus. And wow, God must 
really be among them. Because it's not we ourselves that they're impressed by. It's, it's normal people that God has done something great through. That brings glory to God and not to us. And so you see, whether it's baptism or the way the message is preached, or the way the people are, Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that God has designed all these things not to exalt man, but to display His glory. It's all about Him. But it's the Corinthians' failure to understand these basic gospel truths which have contributed to their pride, And have contributed to the division which is now marring their church and their witness to God's glory within their community. And so that brings us finally to our third point. The remedy for the division. So we've stressed how important unity is. And we've seen that it is so often lacking. Well, how do we fix it? Well, I think A.W. Tozer said it well when he said this. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. And you see the point here is that the, the real key to having unity in the church is actually not just learning how to get along better. That is important. But the real key to unity in the church is letting these very gospel realities that we have just been discussing sink down into our hearts so that the way we think, the way we speak, and the way we act are tuned to the gospel. Because if we find our lives being tuned to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then by default we will be tuned to with one another. And so what is the tuning fork that we all need to hear? What is it that, that, that sound that, that should bring our lives into conformity with it? Well, I think Paul beautifully sums it up here in the last two verses of our section, verses 30 and 31. Listen as I read. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What I want you to notice here, as Paul just succinctly captures the gospel, is that it is all because of God, it is all through Christ, and it is all for God's glory. Paul says it is all because of God. He says, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. We're not saved because we trusted Christ or because of the eloquence of some preacher. No, we trusted Christ and we heard the preacher because God willed to save us. 
As it says in Ephesians, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And as Paul tells us in Romans 8, whom God predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. Oh, friends, we are in Christ. Not because of any wisdom. Not because we were clever enough to see it was the truth. Not because there was some goodness in us. We are in Christ because of God. Of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. God saved us. 100% of His grace. And then, all the blessings we receive... All that we have, it's all through Christ. Paul says, Christ became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus Christ is our all in all. He is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the one through whom we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He is the one who has given us His perfect righteousness that we may receive eternal life in His name. And He is the one who has sanctified us, making us a kingdom and priest to God through Him. We have all things in Christ. We're not jockeying for position in the church. We're not you know, arguing or taking offense. No, we are satisfied and full when we understand who Christ is and what He has done for us. And then finally, this is all for the glory of God. Paul writes, So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 there, where um, God had said, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor let the strong man boast in his might, nor the rich man boast in his riches, but let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. And friends, when we understand the gospel rightly, it, it opens our eyes and fills our hearts to see God more clearly for who He is. That he is a God of all grace, full of love. And, and, and that tunes our heart to say, you know what, the one thing I want is the glory of God. I boast in Christ. Myself, I have nothing to boast in but Christ. He is the one I want to boast in. And the more our hearts are tuned to that, then the more our lives will, will keep in step with the gospel. The more our lives will, will do, we want to do whatever we can to bring glory to God. And all the things, the personal slights and the preferences in preachers and the other things that otherwise could seem so big and so threatening to the unity of the church, they all become so much smaller uh, when we are boasting in Christ and Christ alone. And so friends, as we think about our own churches and how we can strive for unity, uh, think of what Paul does here with this church that's divided in Corinth and how he reminds them of the gospel. And he reminds them, no, it's not about man. It's not about who a great preacher is. It's not even about you and what you bring to the table. It's about Christ. It's about how God is taking very average, very ordinary, even lowly people, and He is using them to display His glory so that we may learn to boast in Christ and in Christ alone. And so with God's help, may we all uh, grow to do that faithfully so that our churches will be united and so that the world will know that 
Jesus came from God, that we are his people, and that they too may hear and believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this message. We thank you for the unity that we do have in Christ. For all of us whose hearts have been uh, softened and have bowed before you and said, Lord, we are sinners, but you are our Savior. And you have loved us and we want you to be glorified. We have great unity when we uh, think of that. God, we pray that whatever else may divide us, that you would help us to, to maintain that unity which you have created. We ask this for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.